Hey, well, we're we're blessed this morning to have Dr. Michael Coleman and his family with us. Uh, he's going to share, I know, just a, a, a needed message for us this morning. So uh, we just ask that you uh, just pray, be praying for him in the next few moments as he brings God's word. Uh, and later on, if you get a chance, just uh, introduce yourselves, uh, express your thanks for him being here with us. But Dr. Coleman, we're glad you're with us this morning. And come morning. It's great to be out here. You know, I've got little ones. Maybe some of you saw they were already ushered out. It didn't last long. And we tried. Uh, But what was so great is we got here a little early. And of course, they saw this park. You know, when we turned left on Pell Avenue, I think it was Pell Street. And of course, like the van goes crazy. Let us out, let us out. So thankfully, we were here early and they got to enjoy your downtown park here right off Pell Avenue. Um, that probably wasn't a good idea for us to stop because they thought it was just time to play all morning and couldn't sit in the pews for very long. Uh, I'm grateful to be here. What a gift for me to be able to come here and open God's Word. And the best way I can thank you for inviting me is to do just that, to give you the Word of God this morning, which I have every intention of doing, but to ensure that that happens and you don't just get a guest preacher, but you get a word from God, would you pray with me again? can't pray too much, so let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, I am grateful for this opportunity that I beg of you to give me all the grace I need to steward it well. I pray that I would open your word in the power of your Holy Spirit so that these dear saints would hear a message from heaven. Not a message from a mere man, but a message from you as you stand before us, Lord Jesus, bidding us to come to you this morning. We've sung about that. We've prayed about that. And here we're praying again, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. It was about a year ago, uh, and I should even back up before that, about a year ago, I realized uh, the trajectory of my life was going to change dramatically. I was born with two leaky valves. You know, if any of you have a leaky valve, we have solidarity Of course, mine don't leak anymore, and I'll get to that in a moment. But they realized this when I was in my young 20s. And so from my young 20s up until through my late 40s, I had to go in for these annual echocardiograms to make sure that what they had determined in my young 20s were mild leaks didn't progress to become severe leaks. Once leaks go from mild to moderate to severe, severe is the trigger for surgery or what my surgeon up at the Cleveland Clinic loved to call an intervention. I'm like, a surgery, right? Uh, So, an intervention. So it was last July that I was having my annual echocardiogram with a doctor in Louisville, and I went in there, and Dr. Sam Donnie, he did the echocardiogram, he looked at the screen, and not very good bedside manner, he looked at me and he said, that mitral valve is shot. (laughs) Wait a minute, come on. Like, I'm strong, but not that strong. Can we be a little more gentle with this? Uh, What do you mean by shot? Um, am I going to get up and walk out of here? Is this thing going to you know, blow up on me and I just fall over in the parking lot? And he said, no, it's shot. It's, it's moved from, it had been to moderate. So over those years, I knew I had moderate leaks, but they don't do anything with moderate, uh, at least in my case. Uh, but this had moved to severe. And I said, well, well how long, Dr. Samdani, until I need to have this thing worked on? And he said, ah, oh, three to five years. Now, look, I'm, I'm a doctor, but I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm looking at the screen, and it shows in, in color the leak, and I, I'm looking at the screen. I don't think you need an MD to go, 
that's a problem. I'm not sure I got three to five years. Uh, and I said, you sure? And he said, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. So I went home. My wife and I said, I need a second opinion <laughs> right away because I'm not confident with three to five years. So long story shorter, I scheduled an appointment up with my uh, cardiologist, now Dr. Sue, up in, in, in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic. It's one of the better cardiovascular hospitals in the country. And I thought, I got kind of one shot at this. Let's go with the best. So he does, they do their own echocardiogram up there now in August, so a year ago. And he's looking at the screen. It looked very similar <laughs> to me that it did in Louisville. And he looks at that and he goes, hmm, I think we need to do an intervention before the end of the year. I'm like, yeah, me too. Yeah, not surprised at all that you would say that. And so that fast-tracked me onto a, a trajectory for surgery that happened October 1st. So here we are, almost 10 months removed, I think if my math is right, from October 1st. And this is all to tell you, I'm going up to Cleveland not knowing if I'm going to have two artificial valves because they were looking at my mitral and my aortic valve. And the aortic valve wasn't so bad that they thought that one needed to be replaced, but they thought, look, as long as, I felt like a car, as long as we got the hood open, so to speak, once I get in there, why don't we just deal with the aortic valve as well? And I'm like, well, yeah, if you don't have to do this again some years from now, let's go ahead and do that. Well, my surgeon, so Dr. Sue recommends is Dr. Weira, and both men, I would just say, in the providence of God, have saved my life. Um, I asked him, well, what are you going to do with the aortic valve? He goes, I'm very confident I can fix the mitral valve, but I don't know what I'm going to do with the aortic valve based on everything I've seen until I'm in. I'm like, oh, great. That's not what you want to hear. So I'm thinking I'm going to have a repaired mitral valve, and then if, Lord willing, I wake up, you know, this side of heaven, uh, I might have an artificial or a titanium aortic valve. I won't know. So let me take you into the ICU. So I'm in the ICU at the Cleveland Clinic. They do the six or so hour surgery. And it's a terrible way to wake up, but I'm waking up to this nurse basically yelling at me, squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand. I'm like, what, what is going on? I'm having this nightmare. So I try to squeeze it, and they're trying to wake you up, and I have to do it. And I finally come to, and I'm squeezing her hand, and I'm getting my strength back. And here's Dr. Weirup standing over my bed like this. I'm like, oh, man, he doesn't look happy. Like, what happened? Uh, so I, my first words to him were, Dr. Weirup, do I have any artificial hardware in me? And then he says something as if we didn't have this conversation before the surgery. He goes, oh, no, no, everything went perfectly. I fixed them both. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me it was going to be that easy before we went in. But I was overjoyed to hear that I have both valves repaired, no leaks anymore. But the real recovery was starting. And all the stuff leading up to that, I could tell you there's some anxious moments, right? Not knowing if this is going to go well. Anything could happen in the surgery. Now I'm in the ICU with a pretty rigorous recovery in front of me. This qualified in my book as a storm in life. Some of you can relate to this, right? Whether it's heart surgery, wondering if your valves are going to be able to be repaired in your late 40s, wondering if you're going to be able to go home to your children, uh, to your wife. Uh, this qualified for me as a storm, everything leading up to it, and then of course the recovery afterwards, making sure everything takes, right? Everything goes well. And I can tell you that's when your faith is most precious. You wake up in the ICU and you've got nurses and doctors all around you, everybody yelling and, and things going kind of crazy, at least in your mind, and you're wondering, where am I? What's going on? I'm clinging to Christ because He is the anchor in that moment, right? When everything's kind of going crazy around you, wondering how it's going to go, you have Jesus. 
You have faith in Him. And that is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul in your storm of life. So here's my question to me and to you this morning. When the winds pick up and the seas get really high in your life with threatening whitecaps, what's your anchor? What for you is your anchor? Because there's a good probability that all of us in this room will end up in the ICU, right? Or something like that. What's your anchor? What will be holding you in the midst of that storm? The great Baptist pastor Edward Mote in 1836, you know he wrote this hymn and you've heard it many times, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. You sing that here? When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest upon unchanging grace. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. You know it is, but we have an anchor for the soul. And isn't that Hebrews 6? I mean, Edward Moe was echoing Hebrews 6 where we read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. On a, as a forerunner on our behalf. So He is our anchor. And He will always hold no matter what storm comes. The gales can't get violent enough. The whitecaps can't get big enough for Him to not hold. He will hold. Now, my goal for this sermon. I'd like to tell you up front what my goal is. This is my prayerful burden for you. As I thought, Lord, You're taking me to Lewisport. What do I want to bring? I want to bring this. That we would see in Jesus this morning our anchor for the storms of our life and trust Him as the all-sufficient Savior that He is. That's my aim. So to help that happen, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Or just listen. The way I preach, you're going to hear this text just proclaimed over you. So you can turn there to Mark 4, 35-41 or just listen. And let me read this brief story now, this true story, get it out before us, and then we'll spend the remainder of my minutes unfolding it. Mark 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. But he was in the stern, Jesus was, asleep on the cushion. There's a cushion, he says, the cushion, you know, the cushion in the boat. He was asleep on it. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Wouldn't you say that too? Like, who is this guy? He talks to the wind and he talks to the sea and they obey. 
Well, friends, briefly, there's a context to this story, this true story. And I want you to note this. A lot of things I could say about the context, but note this. This story is filled with eyewitness characteristics. And I'll tell you in a moment why that's important. But notice how much Mark, our author, is trying to ground this story in history. This is a non-fiction story. This really happened. It has all the marks of a true story. And it, and it supports the things I'm going to highlight here in a moment. It supports the tradition that it was actually the Apostle Peter who gave firsthand witness to this story to Mark, who wrote it down in the power of the Holy Spirit for our benefit this morning. I mean, look at the things that, that indicate to us that Mark is doing oral history. He's hearing from an eyewitness, one who went through this very event. I mean, verse 35 the hour of the day is told us when evening had come. See, grounds us in a real day, at a real time, when evening had come. In verse 36, notice the reference to the disciples taking Jesus with them, quote, just as he was. Didn't change his clothes, didn't do anything different. Just as he was, get in the boat, here we go. It's evening, just as he was. Verse 36, notice there's the presence of other boats. Not the only one there on the sea. Like There's other boats around. Peter just relaying what he had seen with his own eyes. Verse 37, the boat was filling up with water. I mean, Peter's watching this happen as the storm is raging. The boat is filling up. Wouldn't you be a little nervous, a little white-knuckled going, what's happening here? This is quite a storm. The boat's filling up. Verse 38, again, grounding this in history. Jesus sleeping on, not just a cushion, but notice the cushion. Peter's like, there was a cushion in the stern of the boat. He's asleep on it. You know, the cushion. Verse 38, another one. The disciples' irritation. Peter relays this to Mark. We were irritated. We couldn't believe that he was sleeping. We'll come back to that. And then one more. Jesus' rebuke in verse 40. He actually gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And then, of course, the disciples in verse 40 he rebukes them. Why aren't you believing? Why aren't you trusting? Why are you so afraid? We have some reasons, right? We'll come back to that. Now, that's amazing enough, right? We might see this, and we're Bible people, right? And we look at them, and we go, well, this is amazing. Peter is relaying this true story to Mark, saying, write it down. This is history. And Mark, as a great historian, is taking oral history. He's writing it down. This is what happened. The Holy Spirit's moving him to relay this true story to us, to every generation, until he comes again. And that would be amazing enough. But here, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm here to tell you, Mark's main purpose isn't to establish history. Mark's purpose is theological. He doesn't just want to show us history. He wants to interpret that history theologically for us this morning. The gospel is on display in this text. The truth of God's grace in Christ is on display in this text. So don't just hear it's, it's history. It is history. But this history is bringing with it theology for our souls. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's my outline. Here's how I want to come at this great story. I have two questions. I want to ask of it. And some of you think, wait a minute, he's a Baptist preacher. Don't I have to have three points? Uh, I only got two. So if you can hang with me for two, I have two questions I want to ask of this text that I think will be, be instrumental in unfolding it for us. First question, 
What does this story reveal about Jesus? Brother Ryan said, we want to see you revealed this morning, Lord Jesus. Reveal yourself to us. That's what he's doing in this text. God is revealing his son to us. So I'm going to ask, what does this story reveal about Jesus in particular? And then secondly, what does this story reveal about us? I want this text to be a mirror for us. What does it reveal about us? So let's take each one in turn first. What does this story reveal about Jesus? Look with me at verses 35 to 39. This, this is really the heart of what it's revealing about Jesus. Let me just tell you ahead of time. Spoiler alert. I won't wait. I'll tell you now. This is what it reveals about Jesus. Jesus is Lord over nature and therefore is God. Okay, so this story is revealing for us the divinity of Christ as He stands as Lord over nature. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm, right? Our God moves in mysterious ways. We sing that one too. And that's what this story is revealing. The Lordship of Christ over nature. And this Lordship of Christ over nature reveals His divinity. That He is God, because only God is Lord over nature. Let's look at it. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. So get the picture, it was quiet until it wasn't, right? This major storm sweeps in. The waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern. For those of you that don't know stern, back of the boat. Right? So he's in the back of the boat. And what's he doing? He's asleep on the cushion. Already you know this God. I mean, who sleeps in a storm like this? And we'll get into that in a moment. But here's Jesus sleeping on the cushion. Well, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. So in other words, nature obeyed. Jesus had something to say to nature. And nature said, okay, that's fine. You have spoken. You're Lord over us. No pushback. No arguing. No continuing to rage. Just quiet. Because Jesus had spoken. Now let me take you inside this boat. I want you to get on this boat with me. In 1986, the hull of a fishing boat was recovered from the mud on the northwest shore, not of the Outer Banks, but of the Sea of Galilee, okay? about five miles south of Capernaum. Now, carbon-14 technology dates the boat between 120 B.C. and 40 A.D. So this would have been the very kind of boat Jesus and the disciples were in. What do we know about this boat? This boat that was discovered back in 1986 in the Sea of Galilee, it was approximately 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. It was propelled by four rowers, two on each side, so the rowing, no, no outboard engine, right? It's got rowers. Um, and had a capacity of about 15 people. So it would have fit perfect, the disciples and Jesus. This was the kind of boat, as I mentioned, that Jesus and his disciples were in on this day, as they started to make their way across and get the picture. Now, the Sea of Galilee, what do you know about the Sea of Galilee? Let me try to take you there. 
as well. It lies nearly 700 feet below sea level. That's important to help you understand that this kind of storm that broke out really happens. So it lies 700 feet below sea level in a basin surrounded by hills and mountains. Now, cold air from the mountains, for example, Mount Hermon is 30 miles to the northeast, towering 9,200 feet. So you get this idea of, of cold wind coming down from the mountains, then merging with this warm air that's coming up off this lake that's 700 feet below sea level, creating the conditions for a perfect storm. And that's what's happening here. Verse 37, that phrase, great windstorm, could be translated fierce squall or violent storm or even hurricane. You could translate it hurricane. That's what's breaking out on the Sea of Galilee. It hadn't been that way when they started out. But this cold air coming down from the mountains, meeting that warm air, created these conditions for a violent storm, even a hurricane. Now the disciples, you know this, some of whom were veteran fishermen, So these aren't someone like me going out on a boat and getting a little nervous at a little white cap. I mean, these are veteran fishermen that have probably seen many a storm in their day. But even they are gripped with fear as Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat. How is he sleeping during this? And you can imagine the disciples aren't real happy about that. In other words, it was his idea that we get in this boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. And what's he doing sleeping while we're going to perish? All of us, white-knuckled, holding on. What are we going to do? Our master, our leader is sleeping. And so, you know, verse 38, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, and I'm going to read it this way because I think this was the panic in their voice. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're more than irritated. Right? They're frustrated, they're terrified, and they're thinking Jesus doesn't care. If you cared, in other words, you wouldn't be sleeping. You'd be doing something, right? Can you relate to the disciples a little bit? Ever been there? Ever talked like that? Either directly or indirectly to the Lord? What are you doing, Jesus? Don't you know what's going on in my life right now? But Jesus, notice, he hears their cries. This is so important for us to get. He hears their cries. They cry out to him, and he doesn't sleep through their cries, does he? He hears their cries, and he's attentive to their cries. Yes, they're crying out. And you might even say, wait a minute, the tone of voice Peter and the others used? I mean, what mercy that Jesus hears their cries and acts on their behalf, which we'll see here, right? But they come frustrated, irritated. Jesus can handle it. He doesn't rebuke them in the sense of, what are you talking to me like that for? Do you know who I am? He hears their cries, and He arises to action. On their behalf, for their good. He works for their good. He knows our frame. He knows but we are dust. Right? He hears the cries of his people and he acts. See there in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind. Notice he doesn't rebuke them right now. He could have, but he doesn't. He arises to rebuke the wind and says to the sea, Peace, 
be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The authoritative word of Jesus was all it took to quiet the storm. We should marvel at that. All he had to do was use words. Peace, be still, doldrums. The wind stopped howling, and the seas stopped raging, and there was calm. Jesus rebukes the wind like an unruly heckler. He says to the wind, be quiet. Stop your howling. And the wind says, okay. In essence, he says, stop talking. I want it quiet out here. My people are afraid. And the form of the verb, be still, if you, if you notice this in verse 39, the, the form of the verb, be still, speaks to an ongoing condition. So what Jesus is saying, be still and stay still. I don't want another peep out of you until I say otherwise. It's incredible. What power, what authority that Jesus wields. As you know, because I think I'm in a Bible church, I know Lewisport Baptist, you know your Bible, but let me just stir you up to remembrance like Peter talks about in his epistles. As you know, in the Old Testament, this is conduct. What we're seeing Jesus doing here in this story, this is conduct reserved only for God. Only God is sovereign over nature. So the disciples would have got that. If they know their Hebrew, old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, they're thinking, um, who does this? <laughs> who talks to the wind and says, be still? Who talks to the seas and they obey? Remember Job 38? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And who said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? That's God talking to Job, saying that's a rhetorical question. Who does that? Who says waves go no further? God does that. Only God does that. Or in Psalm 89, verse 9, O Lord of hosts, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That's the psalmist recognizing who God is now. He is sovereign over nature. One more, Psalm 107. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus performing Psalm 107, 29 in the midst of the disciples. He's telling the sea to be hushed. And I think those disciples, if they know their Bible, they're thinking, uh, that's Psalm 107 happening right in front of me. Who is in on this? The disciples were starting to see the connection, right? You see it here, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Now this is after their silence, right? Wait a minute, they're filled with great fear. I would expect that as it was before the storm stopped. But here, verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, um, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think they're more afraid of realizing who's in the boat with them than they were of the sea that was raging. I get the picture. They're looking at one another going, um, who invited him? What's going on here? I think God's in our midst. Here's the point of this first point, first question that we've asked. Jesus has done what only God can do. 
And the disciples were starting to realize this. Do we? Do we? Do we see in Jesus God? Well, I've got one more question for this text. Verse 1, he's revealing who Jesus is, namely God, a very God. The sovereign one is in their midst and in our midst. Here's my second question. What does this story reveal about us? Let's hold it up as a mirror. What does it tell us about us? What it's revealing is really getting at the heart of discipleship. Are you a follower of Christ this morning? Are you born again? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting? Are you a child of God? Can you say that this morning? Can you cry out, Abba, Father, because the Holy Spirit is testifying to your spirit that you are a child of God? If so, this text is saying something about what is at the heart of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? In the course of discipleship, here's what this story reveals. There's more to say about discipleship, but I'm asking, what does this story tell me about our discipleship? Well, in the course of discipleship, we will go through storms. You might think, oh, how clever is that? I mean, that, that was obvious. You don't need a PhD, right? To understand that, yeah, that's probably what's going on here. And it is, but it's worth remembering that this isn't a story that's unique to the disciples, to the twelve. This is a story that is indicative or what is normal, in a sense, for followers of Christ. Let me try to develop this for you. Consider who was in the boat. Okay, who was in the boat? These were the men who had left their nets and tax booths and all the comforts of home to follow Jesus. That, that's who's in the boat. The ones that said, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll leave my nets. I'll leave my tax booth. I'll leave all the creature comforts of home. And here we are in this, what would be a three-year journey, a three-year uh, uh, internship, if you will. But I'm going to leave it all to follow you. And now they're in a boat with a violent storm, a great squall, even a hurricane battering down on them. And they're followers of Christ. These were the men who were enduring the scorn of the religious elite so they could serve the master. In other words, these were disciples. Wait, this stuff doesn't happen to disciples, right? Wait a minute. Yes, it does. Jesus knew full well what was going to happen that evening on the Sea of Galilee. This isn't taken by surprise. Oh, wait, wait, we're in the midst of a storm. No, he's sleeping because he knew what he was going to do. He knew what was happening. Jesus knew full well what was going to happen that evening. Every gust of wind came at the precise time, direction, and speed that God ordained it. Do you have a God like that? Do you, do you see that God in the Bible? Let me say that again because I think this is really true and should do much to encourage you in your own storm. Every gust of wind came at the precise time, direction and speed that God ordained. No swells went higher or lower than determined by God. And every white cap crashed on divine cue. It's as if he knows every white cap by name. Crash now, crash now. Oh, you bigger, smaller. Now, now. This storm did not take Jesus by surprise. Every detail of it governed by his infinite wisdom and almighty power. 
and out of the great love with which he loves his own. Apparently, there were things these disciples needed to learn about Jesus that only the storm could teach. And so it is with us. There are things that we need to know about Jesus that only the storm will teach. How do I know this story is about us? Well, because what Jesus says in Mark 8.24, for example, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, you know this text, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now notice he says, disciples, take up a cross. Not a beach towel, not a blanket, not a pillow, but a cross. And what is a cross? But an emblem of suffering and shame. And that's what it means to be a disciple. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And then in John 16.33, our Lord says this to us this morning. In the world you will have tribulation. Still want to be a Christian? It's what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm sovereign over this world. I sit upon the storm. And I got it, guide it to my appointed end. Acts 14.22. Remember this one? I know this story is for us because of Acts 14.22. When Paul and Barnabas were going about, what, did they, what does Luke tell us they were doing? They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying... Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Through many leisurely activities, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas went about to the churches telling this to non-apostles, followers of Christ. We're going to strengthen you in the grace of God. One way to do that is to remind you that it's through many tribulations that you will enter into the kingdom of God. Now one more. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, what does he say to us this morning? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter, the one who went through this story, right? says to us, don't act surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as he, what does he say? As if something strange were happening to you. Now, if you're like me, when a fiery trial comes upon me, when I'm looking at that echocardiogram and my blood spraying out of my mitral valve, I'm like, oh, that seems strange. <laughs> that, that seems strange. Seems like something strange is happening to me. But that trial in the economy of God, is not strange. It's not strange. Our Savior loves us too much to always withhold the storms. He loves us too much to always withhold the storms. And oh, how many storms has He withheld? But He doesn't withhold them all, does He? Through the storm, God teaches us precious lessons that apart from the storm, we would never learn. In the storm, for example, I see my weakness, my utter hopelessness without Him. That's good for me. In the storm, I see more clearly my sin 
and ongoing need for forgiveness. That's good for me. In the storm, I see the fleeting pleasures of this world for what they really are, making me long for my heavenly home, right? The storm will do that. It will wean us away from the false pleasures of this world. So I long for a Savior from heaven who's going to come and transform this lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. In the storm, I see my God as mighty to save, my helper, my defender, and the one who alone can uphold me with his righteous right hand. Only in the storm can I hear the infinitely precious words of my Lord, peace, be still. What would I know of peace? What would I know of calm if I didn't know the storm? Apart from the storm, how would I ever truly know God's love and grow to love him as I should? There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when we will say from the heart, like the psalmist, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good. Let me close this sermon. How would I close? By directing your attention to verse 40. He said to them, and here is this loving rebuke. It is a rebuke, but it's a, it's a loving rebuke. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Maybe some of us need to hear this this morning from our Lord. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The question Jesus put to his disciples in the boat, he puts to us this morning. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The antidote to fear is faith. You know that. The cure, the remedy, the antidote to the virus of fear is faith. Faith in the one who bled for you, died for you, rose on the third day for you, intercedes for you, and will surely come again to take you to himself. Indeed, we have a Savior who went through the hurricane of God's wrath against sin for us. The squall of judgment fell on him so that we could enter into the calm after the storm. That is Salvation. Salvation. The Jesus who calmed the storm in Mark 4 that we've just seen is the same Jesus who stands before you this morning calling to you to take refuge in the shadow of His wings. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He bids us this morning, come to Me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look to him through the tempest of your affliction and find him faithful. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you are Lord over all. You are Lord over every storm in our life. As we've already said, you plant your feet upon the, 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 the sea and ride upon the storms of our life, directing them to your perfect end. And the perfect end for us is to make us more like yourself. And so, God, we pray that we would have faith 
to trust you more, that we might become more radiant, more in the image of your Son. And we thank you in Jesus' name.